You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Welcome to HarperCollins Presents. This is Caitlin Gary with Harper Audio. I recently got the chance to discuss writing genre fiction for adult and children with New York Times bestselling authors, Garth Nix, author of the Old Kingdom series, including the prequel Clarial, and the duo behind Alona Andrews, author of several series, including the upcoming Hidden Legacy series. Together, we talked about how they build their worlds, creating rules for magic, and of course, the genres so many of us love, science fiction and fantasy. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your New York Comic Con schedules to come talk to us. Um, so to kick it all off, can each of you kind of go around and introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about your latest book? Let you kn- everyone know what you're working on as well as let everybody identify your voices. Uh, hello, I'm, I'm Garth Nix. I'm here from Sydney, Australia, and I'm currently on the road promoting my new book, Clariel. And Clariel is the latest book set in the Old Kingdom, uh, following on from Sabriel, Lirel and Abhorson. But it's actually a prequel to Sabriel. It takes place 600 years earlier. And this is a time when the Old Kingdom is actually very settled. It's not like in the time of Sabriel, where the dead have risen all over the place. The dead won't stay dead and free magic creatures roam the land. It's a settled time. Everything seems perfectly quiet in the Old Kingdom. And in fact, It's been so peaceful for so long that the people have forgotten the importance of keeping the dead down. They've forgotten the importance of charter magic. And they've also forgotten the importance of the Abhorsons, the family whose job it is to keep the dead down. And they've kind of lost track as well. They've lost their their purpose. And the story is about a young woman called Clariel. And she's forced by her parents to move to the capital city of Belisere. And she doesn't want to go. She's a loner. She's a natural hunter. She wants to live her life out under the sky in the woods. And she does not want to be trapped behind stone walls in the city, surrounded by all these people. And her parents also have other plans for her that she doesn't want to follow. They want her to marry someone. There are other forces at work. So she's in Belisere, the capital city. She doesn't want to be there. She wants to get out. And she'll do whatever it takes to get out of the city. And unfortunately, while things seem very peaceful, as always, there are undercurrents happening. Free magic creatures don't go away. They're always there, lurking. And Clariel discovers that some of her allies who might help her leave the city need her help first to find a free magic creature they believe is there. And she decides to help them, to help them find this creature. And this begins a whole adventure and a whole series of events that uh, draw her into a power struggle within the city and the kingdom, uh, but it also draws her into a threat from very ancient powers within the old kingdom. Hi, um, my name is Ilona Andrews. I'm the female part of Ilona Andrews. My husband, uh, Gordon, is the male part. He's also here with us. 
Hello. <laughs> um, I'm. I'm not sure how we we have not done a lot a lot of mm. podcasts before, but um, let's see. We're here at Comic Con to promote our upcoming book. Um, Burn for me. Burn for me. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. At this point, we kind of feel like critic from that critic show. Um, I my book. <laughs> have you ever seen it with John Levitz? And he's yeah, like, I, I haven't actually. But. Oh, it's quite it, funny. It's, it's, a, it's a movie critic, and he had written um, a book. And at some point, his publisher supplies him with this cardboard cutout. And when you pull a string, it goes, buy, buy my, my book. book. Okay. <laughs> oh, we, should, we should all have those. I know. <laughs> I think at this point, I think okay. sometimes we feel like that. But I mean, I, how would, I would kind of describe it as sort of a more paranormal Yeah, uh, it's a story. paranormal romance. But it's not paranormal in the sense that it has werewolves or vampires. It's actually um, set in modern Houston, except at some point in the past century, um, people have discovered a serum that permits their latent magical powers to manifest. So people figured out those powers were genetic, and uh, by the time they decided that giving everybody super awesome powers was not a good idea, um, and locked the serum. But it was away. too late, unfortunately. It, too late. it passed to their descendants and changed. Exactly. And we ended up with dynasties, magical dynasties. Imagine, if you will, the Hiltons or the Kardashians, um, as they are now, except they are able to spit fire. It's scary. Yeah, um, like at the, the DuPonts or, you know, what are the, the Gettys, but they actually are have you know, incredibly powerful magic. Because since that time, they they have, in the, in the interim, they have bred for looks, money, and power. And power. That's what they prize. Exactly. And, and to get all of those things, they kind of need magic. So there's people with different magical talents. There's pyrokinetics that set things on fire. Um, there are telepaths who can read people's thoughts. Um, you know, there's there's people who have interesting talents like they're able to walk into the room and rearrange the room in such a way as to evoke a particular emotion in the person who comes in. So, you know, you walk into this room and suddenly you're incredibly depressed, which sounds like a relatively minor talent, except, you know, if you're already depressed and suicidal, you might walk into the room and kill yourself. So the book kind of, it's, it's set in Houston during this alternative time, our time, and it features a woman her name is Nevada Baylor, and Nevada has an interesting talent. She's able to tell the truth. She's basically able to tell whenever someone is lying. Well, she's a human lie detector. Yeah, she's basically a human lie detector. She can't compel someone to tell the truth, but she knows. Yeah, she knows when, when somebody is, is not being truthful. Um, and she runs a small detective agency. It was started by her father and mother, uh, but her mother was injured in the war. Her mother's a veteran, and her father died due to a very um, incurable terrible illness. So now she's kind of in charge of the agency, and she supports her family. It's her grandmother, her mother, her sisters, and her two cousins that all live together. Um, so Nevada is is the breadwinner, and unfortunately, because of her father's illness, they ended up mortgaging their, their business. So it's actually, now the business is controlled by a much larger, very prestigious, huge detective agency. And they call her in, uh, which they have never gone, done before, and they basically tell her, hey, uh, we need you to go and apprehend this one guy. His family wants him back. He's gone off, you know, the beaten path. Well, he's committed, actually, in this case, a horrible crime. The, the family is concerned that if the police reach him first, they'll kill him. So they want him brought in so that he can stand trial, as opposed to just being 
shot shot on site. On yeah. site. And the person in question, Adam Pierce, happens to be a really, really, really powerful pyrokinetic, the kind of pyrokinetic that can set like a building on fire by walking into it. So she's, of course, none too thrilled, but it's it, she has no choice. She either finds this guy and brings him safely back to his family, or, you know, they, um, lose, the business. they lose the business, and all of their possessions are kind of tied into the business. So she's trying to find him, and in the course of her investigation, she kind of runs into another very, very powerful magic user. They're called primes. The most powerful magic users are called primes. In the they're world. normally the head of the distinctive families. Because they're almost like the mob in that way. There's, there's the different families, and each of them is normally headed by the strongest magic user in the family. It doesn't matter male or female, just the strongest magic user. The strongest user. magic user, yeah. Um, it's kind of, it, it is like a mob in some extent, or maybe like Medici's, um, you know, one of those great dynasties, that big, powerful families that used to exist. In this particular case, uh, it's Meadrogan. Uh, he was, he became very famous during the war. He's an incredibly powerful telekinetic, um, and he, he's kind of this enigmatic, scary figure. Um, here's the problem. Nevada has a moral code, and she follows it. Mandrogan kind of, sort of, has a moral code, but it's very specific. He does, but it's not tied to any particular law, law. or anything like that. It's just like his that. own code. So when the two of them are forced to work together, they have very interesting interactions, like, I'm just going to choke her until she tells me what I want to know. No, you can't do that. We don't <laughs> choke people. Yeah, well, and because in the sense that, that Nevada almost sees herself as, if not necessarily law enforcement, as in her capacity as a private detective, as, as kind of obeying the laws. And she's very circumspect with knowing the laws, obeying the laws. And he's like, yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah, he's like, look, I can cut her into pieces and shoot her up into those rafters. They won't find her for weeks. And, <clears throat> you know, she's like, no. She's like, you can't sure. do that. And he's like, yeah, I can do that. You she's don't like, well, want you me to do, do that. that. Yeah. You know? So, and it doesn't help that there's really, really a lot of attraction between the two of them. And... Um, that's basically what the new series is yeah. about. It's a lot of hit, a lot of romance, a lot of crazy Houston millionaires. Um, at some point, there was a conversation where where uh, Madrogan volunteers how much he's worth, and we had like some ridiculous numbers, like five hundred million or whatever. And Erica Tseng, our Avon editor, emailed uh, us back and said, "Can we give him more money? Couldn't he be billionaire?" <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so, enough that they're magic millionaires. They have to be now magic, magic billionaires. It's ridiculous yeah, amounts it's, of money. That's the modern world all over. Yeah, yeah exactly. Billionaire is not enough. Got to be a billionaire these yeah. days. Yeah. So that's our new book. It comes out at the end of October, October twenty eighth, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, we hope you check it out. Yeah. All right. I'm actually kind of curious because you've written several series before this. When each series, you kind of like create your own rules and in this case you mentioned that you kind of created a family dynasty um, around the world. How did you go about creating the rules of magic and creating the world that Nevada's story takes place in? Well, we took I, several trial steps of it actually. We had several previous stories that we always were interested in having kind of like a mafia-like environment where it was the family, the actual clan kind of family. Yeah, because you did a little. We did a little bit with like the kinsmen mm -hmm. thing, and then they were mostly small independent projects. And we kind of tried the idea and tried it. <laughs> Another terrible things that will never ever see yeah. the light of day. And we finally hit onto this kind of a, a medium where 
there is magic, and this is a new for us. We've never done the thing where, where magic and technology coexist. At some point, I remember we looked at the manuscript, and I think I said, you know, this book would not exist without the smartphone, because she's checking things on the smartphone all the yeah. time. Yeah, it's not an adversarial relationship, like in the Kate books, between magic and technology. In this one, they kind of coexist. Yeah, they coexist, I guess because it's not so much that the, each other. It's not so much that the world is magic, it's just that people have... Magic. Magic in a mundane world, I guess, if that makes... Yeah. There's not like there's not like flying snakes falling out of the sky or, or gods wrecking downtown. It's more individuals have those those powers. It, there's kind of like an um, unwritten rule in fiction where typically what you will have is an ordinary person in extraordinary circumstances or extraordinary person in ordinary circumstances, like Sherlock Holmes, for example, an extraordinary person in relatively ordinary circumstances. So we were hoping to have kind of a normal world, but with extraordinary people in it. Um, some changes did follow. For example, Mexico is a superpower, like technologically advanced, huge superpower in that world, and it's kind of like the boogie. They're an empire, yeah. They're, they're an empire, um, because they became very magically powerful. Um, the the Indian, Native American tribes yeah. have also, within the United States, what we consider the United States, the Native Americans also have um, their own territory. They're, they're yeah, autonomous. Yeah, they're, they're autonomous. They they're have their nation. own republic. India is a huge, um, you know, power because, again, magic. Because when they distributed the serum, you know, um, civilized countries kind of caught up on the fact that you should not give, you know, random Joe power to shoot lightning from his fingertips much faster than developing nations did at that point because developing nations were like, okay, we will take the risk. We need to catch up, you know, as, as far as progress goes. Yeah, it's kind of an equalizer, I guess. And it's, a it global was an equalizer. equalizer. Yeah. So it was very interesting to plot it in that sense because Gordon actually is um, hist has a history degree that was his speciality in college. So we got to do like a little bit of alternative history. Really yeah. It's always fun. Yeah. 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 And then you actually returned with Clariel to like a world that you had already established. What was that like, kind of diving back into the rules and world that you had built? And was there anything that you were particularly trying to explore within the world that you'd already created? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote Sabriel in the early 90s. It was first published in Australia in 1995 and here in 96. So it's almost 20 years since it first came out. So I've been in that world for a long time, I, I guess. Um, not always writing things in it, because I've written many other things. It was interesting to go back. I mean, I had to reread the earlier books, which is something I don't particularly like doing. I don't normally like to reread re my earlier books. I like to move ahead and write new ones. I can see you guys agreeing with me. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's always the new ones that are, that are interesting. But So I had to reread them and reread a lot of my notes. But I, I quite enjoyed that, to be honest, and it was interesting to see how many small details I'd put in there that I'd completely forgotten, but I needed for the new book, which would prove, would prove useful. Um, with Clariel, the main thing that I wanted to explore that, or explore further was how free magic works, because I have two types of magic within that world. Uh, there's charter magic, which is structured and ordered, and the, the charter underpins everything, and is a, if you, if you can, work with the, the correct charter marks, the symbols that describe and contain everything, then you can manipulate anything as well. Uh, but free magic is, is raw and unconstrained and directed by, by will alone and has all kinds of problems associated with that. And so I wanted to 
to look into that more because I hadn't done that in the previous books. They're much more about about the charter and, and charter magic and the other side of the, the equation. But that was a very secondary thing because I'm always what I'm most interested in is story. I just want to tell a good story. And it emerged that the good story I wanted to tell was a lot about free magic. But I didn't start off thinking I want to explore free magic. I wanted to tell the story of Clarion and, and, and as it had grown up in my head. Because it, it, it actually started very early on. Um, I made a note when I was writing Lyrael, and I went back and, and checked this in my, my manuscript books. When I was writing Lyrael, I made a note about one of the characters in Lyrael. I just wrote on the, on the side, I said, now where did she come from? Where did this person come from? And I went and had a look, and I wrote that in 1998. So in 1998, I wrote a note about a character, and then many, many years later, I came back to it and actually wrote the story about where this person came from. How did that person begin? Um, how do you get from, from A to Z, I guess? So it was, it was going back and telling an origin story, basically. So uh, it was very interesting. I, I, I enjoyed going back into the world and, uh, and, and revisiting it. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of room to work and plenty of, plenty of room to, to do more as well. That's going to have fans like very hopeful after they hear that. <laughs> well, I've, I've already said I am doing another one. Oh. So Apparently, it's, it's I got the memo. A... Will you, if you write another one in the Lariel world, will you mention the Clarial? Do you think like will you do you think you'll refer to her yeah. now that you've set her up? Like? Well, I actually needed to write Clarell in order yeah. to write the book that's coming next, even though it's six hundred years later. Um, some of the it, it does actually tie back into some of the things that, that happened in Clarell. So it's all it's all connected. It's all part of one big uh, mythology, I, I guess. So so that's kind of interesting as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the the realization that you have to write a prequel in order to then write a sequel to the sort of the main narrative. So. It's, it's funny how things work out, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. That's we never, cool. We never got to do that, so I would imagine it has a whole set of challenges with mm, it. Like. Which you might. <laughs> you know, that's one of the great things about, about writing is that you, some, you can be talk, chatting about something or you know, something someone's done or you can read something and think, hmm, that's given me an idea. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it really does. No, because I'm like a prequel would be really interesting if we actually <laughs> no, wrote oh like goodness. the burn from the thing, but like no. in the time to when there was there wasn't magic and then there was magic and how like well that interface when it was all happening would yeah. be very interesting. What precipitated that? Because the way I think of it is really like it's almost like rather than than weapons of mass destruction like you know mustard gas and all the horrible things that we invented yeah. rather, that we wish we didn't invented. They went that route instead of, yeah, so, you know, that yeah. way well, and, and then, unleashed something, uh, kind of that Pandora's box. And they would be of, trying to control it as well, yeah, so that, well and, and not being able to. That's yeah. the thing. They kind of can't. Like, they can't. Mad Rogan basically is an equivalent of a nuclear bomb. When he comes in, he is, has the ability to level a city. He can do this. Mm. He can sit there and he can basically, he sends out kind of almost like a pulse that just levels the city and it's widening and widening and widening. And... When the first time they tried out, because the military tested him, sort of, and the first time he does it, it's not only the military panics, but it's like, okay, stop him. How do we stop him? And it's like, you can't stop him. You have to wait him out until he's done. Him. No, no at that not point, at you that point. You him. can't. Because, he's, right. He's, it's he, kind of like a hurricane. They call him hurricane. Oh, when it's actually happening. Yeah, when it's happening, oh, right. he's like a hurricane. He's in. Yeah. He's actually encapsulated. So in his he's own impenetrable. Little, yeah, yeah, he's kind of the yeah. eye of the storm. Yeah. And everything yeah. is just, we he has to like, of, wear himself out. Yeah. yeah, we introduced the concept of null space, where when he is in that, um, when he enters that stage, 
around him there's basically a ring of um, magic, in other sense. They're not really sure where the magic, or they call it the arcane realm. They're not really sure what it is. They know how to use it, but they're not sure where it is, how it works exactly. And what he has, basically, he has a ring of that magic from the arcane realm, and you can literally shoot him at that point, and the balls simply just disappear. Go yeah, yeah, they're, they're just, going somewhere else. Yeah. I guess somewhere if you else, nuked yeah. him... I don't think it would Who even knows? work. Yeah, because yeah. he's yeah, not there. Knows. He's somewhere yeah. else. You know. Yeah. So what? But you could write a story about someone trying to do it. Yeah. Well, we did actually. We did a really interesting reimagining of Chicago's fire. You know, the Great Fire. Yeah. 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 With Mrs. O'Leary Cow. By the way, I'm so mad about Mrs. O'Leary's Cow thing, because um, as we were researching it, uh, we realized that the whole story where Mrs. O'Leary Cow kicked over a lamp and set Chicago on fire, is complete fabrication. That's all the. Mm. Yeah. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. So this lady, poor lady, was villainized, basically, Yeah. because of this happening. But she and didn't do it. No, she didn't really do it. It was all anecdotal. Like, a reporter pretty much made that up. Yeah. So now yeah. people think of it as a fact when, when it's, it's not, actually. It's finding a scapegoat. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so it didn't, it didn't that hurt that she was Irish. Well, hey, don't get me started. But probably why. Yeah. Why? Yeah. It's just a reflection of the prejudices of that time. Yeah. Mm. But it's so interesting that you had to go back and reread the earlier work. Yeah, we have I, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I would just cringe and crawl into a ball. Well, fortunately, it had been quite a long time. I wouldn't like to do it straight away, but mm. but it was an, enough time had passed that I could I could go back and read them. And I mean, weirdly, when I read things I read a long time ago, I have that sense sometimes that I'm reading something written by someone else. It yeah. feels like someone else wrote. Well, you were a different person when you wrote it. Well, kind of, just to some degree. But if, but I, I mean, I still remember every aspect of writing it, and I, you know, I remember all, all of that. But at the same time, you have just enough distance to be able to read it as if you're a reader coming to to a book that you, you've picked up. So that's very helpful because I wasn't stopping every two paragraphs thinking, oh, I should have changed that word, or, you know, I wish I wish. Do you, I'd though? Listened. Are you critical of your earlier stuff? Uh, well, no, I'm critical of everything, I mean, including the stuff I wrote last week, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, particularly when I hear it on audio, in fact. When, when I listen to the audio books, I can ne- I've never actually listened to all of one of my audio books. I can oh. only listen to parts of them, because oh. I, when I'm hearing it, I think uh, invariably, you know, it may take a while, it might be two or three pages, and then I'll hear a word and think, that wasn't the best word. It's an okay word, but it's not the best, best word, word yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but it's done. At the same time, they're also they're done. They are what they are. They're, they are. They're the children you've raised and sent off, and yeah, made they've made their way in the world, and that's it. You, you, you know. And you guys actually have a very different relationship with your audiobooks. I feel like. Oh yes. Yeah. She's delightful. Uh, Renee, yes. Renee, Renee I Rundle. love her southern. It's one. Oh, it's Sean Evans. Yeah, I died, dear, because I am from the south. I'm from North Carolina. <laughs> the mountains, actually. My whole family were hillbillies. So when I hear her do her southern man, I just die. It's if so she funny. Has this, you know, she has this very Hollywood, yeah. Um, yeah. southern. It's, it's really hard to kind of describe, but um, she's, she's been very generous with her time, and we were able to get her for our <laughs> independent project, actually. We have, we have done one of those things that people tell you not to do. We did a free serial where we put it online, chapter no, by chapter. I think people doing it all the time these days. We got it's a lot a of emails. Interesting saying, experiment. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's weird good to have it's no, good to experiment. Yeah, no no particular deadline. No other particular than deadline. Yeah, we like, write it every Friday. Whatever's written Friday, there it goes. Okay. You know, so like, people actually told us like, "You are crazy. Do you realize nobody is going to buy this?" 
because you put it out there for free. And it turned yeah. out that it was it was a giant success, so we were so terribly happy. But Renee, Renee actually agreed to do an audio The person that us. does our normal Sure, books. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and it's, we were sort of sitting there because this was... <laughs> First of all, at this point, by this point, we sank a lot of money into the audio narration and just general production of the book because it's an indie. And, um, you know, so we're sitting there and we're kind of pensively listening to this, hoping, basically, that, that you it's know... It's not horrible. It's not horrible because, it, it, you know, it, it, we didn't have the benefit of our New York editors. We didn't have the benefit of our, you know, typical copy readers. We just did, you know, wh- whatever we did, we hired. And then she's reading it, and it's very southern. And suddenly, you know, it's a very silly scene where the heroine realizes that something is happening. Uh, she runs a magical inn, and she feels basically somebody is, is on the inn grounds, right? And so um, she's walking out on the balcony. It's very late, and she sees a werewolf down below. And suddenly Renee comes out with Sean Evans, Stop urinating on my apple trees. We just <laughs> it was, died. I can't even do the southern that she did. We like. just died. It was you should like, be able to, though, if you're I, I, the south. Yeah. I can, but here's the thing, like, and, and probably the same. In other, we, as an Americans, we probably have the idea that you have one Australian accent, where it's probably there are regional there are, differences. There are regional differences, um, yeah. The book is, is in Texas, and she did, like, that very, like, oh, Georgia she did, yeah, plantation, she did the, Scarlet O'Hara. Scarlet O'Hara. Oh, which you were very, you were very happy with. The, yeah. with yes, the oh, but she's wonderful. It's yeah. transformative. That's the thing with it audiobooks. It's, yeah. it's transformative because the reader adds their own spin on it. I was very lucky that um, Tim Curry did Sabre Alera. Really? And awesome. oh, wow. Tim Curry. Who did a fantastic really? job. Yeah, so he's That's got amazing. such a great voice. Wow. But of course, when you're listening to it, you always do expect him at some point to suddenly say, why don't you come up to my lab? Yeah, oh, so you're on the slab. Anticipation. He's awesome. But, you... um, but he couldn't do Clariel, sadly, oh. because he, he's been ill, apparently. Oh, um, I didn't know. But the guy who's, who's, who's done it, Graham, is, is very good as well. I kind of want to bring it back real quick to something you brought up, and I kind of saw echoes of it in your own series, is... When you were talking about Clariel in the Old Kingdom, how there's free magic and charter magic, it's very interesting how you set it up as like these two polar opposite ways to approach magic, but often in your main characters you see this duality that's constantly fighting with itself. And then likewise, I feel like in the Kate Daniels series, you've done something similar in the sense where you have the shifters and the people, the very um, different types of magic, and then Kate Daniels is again somewhere in the center. Is this something you guys both purposely do when you write your characters, create these characters that are in this gray zone? And also, do you think that magic requires, or good world building requires these polarities to really be um, authentic or work? (laughs) Rock, paper, scissors, we will concede. You're handballing that question to me. Yes. Um, Well, I think conflict is a source of narrative tension, so you always need conflict. I think with magic, um, there's many different ways to, to make it work. I'm, I'm always very driven by story. I work things out as I go along. I'm not someone who works it all out beforehand. I work it out what I need for the story as I'm, as I'm going along. But my primary motivation is to make it feel real. I want to make it feel as if this could really be happening somewhere, sometime, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that applies very much to the magic as well as everything else. And I think one of the things that you need to do to make it feel real is that magic has to have cost and consequences. 
uh, magic that you can, you can use lightly that that doesn't. It's just like plugging in something into the electric wall socket and turning it on, which has no risks. It has no consequences. You can use it any time. Uh, is is devoid of it's well, it's devoid of conflict, I suppose, and and interest. And it just seems too too easy, too convenient um, for your story. So I think. I always want the magic to feel as real as possible, and the way I make make that work, or I hope I make it work, is by whichever kind of magic it is, is to make it be difficult, and it, it will have a cost of some kind, and it will have consequences as well. And I think all those things help make the magic feel real, and and help make the story feel real. The characters and whatever happens, the whole thing feel as if it is really happening somewhere as you read it. I think um I think you're absolutely right. Magic has to have a cost. Everything yeah. has to have a cost. For every in a sense the the book is a test of a protagonist because as they undergo basically their trials and tribulations, they're tested and they either pass and succeed and get the reward or they fail and they get their comeuppance. Because obviously a protagonist could be a villain or a hero either way. But um as far as polarities and different I think factions, I think that people naturally tend to um, break into factions in real life. Um, okay, look at the high school. Why is it such a, I don't oh, know. Oh, clicks, yeah. Over, overwhelmingly. Well, because at that point in your life, you need that thing to identify yourself. I'm a jock. I'm a smart kid. I'm a goth kid. I don't know. You're yeah, you basically figuring are. Figuring out who you are. Yeah, you, you, you seek safety in the immerse with like-minded people, and that creates factions. And I think that that's the same way as it would be in um, a world, let's say, that's in turmoil like our world uh, of, of Kate Daniels, where mm-hmm. it's basically a long, kind of a slow-motion, drawn-out apocalypse. It keeps happening and happening and happening. And I think that people naturally form factions. Well, you know, shapeshifters will be in one faction. Um, the necromancers, obviously, with their vampires yeah. in the other. Yeah, I, th- I, like the, I, like the, I like the contrast of, I guess, the shapeshifters being kind of the the wild people, you know, they're not, they don't do magic, but but they are magic, basically, as opposed to the people. They're so corporate. Yeah, like, there's very strict rules. It's almost like they're they're stock, yeah, you know, stockbrokers like stock or something. They're incredibly corporate, you know. They have rules. You follow the rules. You rise. You know, if you have talent, you rise. Not too quickly, but you do rise in the ranks, you know, to where... Well, there's you one know. of the scenes that we, we had done where there was a loose vampire. In our world, um, necromancers control vampires. Vampires are completely mindless. They're kind of They're horrible just the looking. dead. They're yeah. not, like, yeah. attractive. Sure. They don't, yeah. like, seduce you. Necromancers kind of telepathically... Yeah, yeah. yeah, they don't sparkle, yeah. fortunately. <laughs> right, yes. Well, you know. They're actually quite disgusting. They're yeah, they're kind of quite, quite disgusting. And their necromancers kind of pilot them around like remote control cars. So one of them gets loose, and, and when they, one a vampire gets loose, it just kills everything with a pulse. So, you know, they're trying to apprehend this vampire, and on one side, Kate grabs the vampire before anybody else does anything. On one side comes the paranormal activity division, which is the, the cops of yeah. the world. And they have, like, a Humvee and a giant gun, and they're all military, right? And on the other side comes a caravan of really high-end SUVs. <laughs> Uh, which disgorges basically these people. Well, uh, they're called the people. Yeah, they the call people. themselves the people because nobody else is the people. There, they have issues with with their identity. But um, you know, they they're well dressed. They're dressed in basically business clothes. business clothes. You know, 
women wearing high heels and they all stand there and they have their little conversation and of course you know vampire gets loose and everybody gets shot because it's one of our books and that's just what happens <laughs> bad things happen yeah but that's that duality of completely different kind of factions is very interesting when we were a little bit younger we used to play this really awesome computer game it was called arcanum i believe yeah I remember yeah. Arcanum. I love that yeah. game. Yeah. yeah, it was like technology or magic. And you could develop a character that was really good at technology, but really bad at magic. Yeah, and if, if you went the technology route, then magic would misfire for you. Or if you went completely the magic way, technological items, mm. you remember, would, wouldn't work. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that you couldn't, it had to be one or the other. I didn't think that you could have, like, well, this, everything. This, this is one of the underlying notions in Sabriel and Lyrael and so on because the, there's the Old Kingdom which is divided by the wall from Ancelstia and Ancelstia has like 1918-ish technology and the Old Kingdom has... Technology doesn't work in the, in the Old Kingdom and magic doesn't work in Ancelstia except, you know, around the region of the wall. They both work to some degree ah. depending which way the wind is blowing. Bleed into each they other bleed into each other. There's an overlap yeah. there. So... Which is something I was I, I've always enjoyed doing. This is a long time before Arcanum. I'd like to point out. Um, <laughs> oh no, 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 um, no. <laughs> um, but but I think it's something that's been explored before, of course, as almost everything has been explored by by other authors at different times and in different ways. Because as we all know, it's all in the execution. It's not the basic idea. It's what you what you do with it. Um, but I, I love that that uh, that combination. And and in fact, in Sabrell, it enabled me to sort of combine some of my ideas for writing a World War One novel with writing a fantasy novel. Oh. Because uh, at, I wanted to write a World War One novel and I realised that I wasn't actually capable of writing the kind of historical novel that I wanted to write at that time. But I took all the, all the, a lot of the things that I'd, I wanted to do in that and put them into my fantasy novel. It's kind of interesting, you know, when you, you start writing something and then you decide you can't do it and so you take elements of it and put it into something else oh, which I'm sure done. you guys have done we've done that we it was, done yeah we ended up being the Bayou Moon yeah, because we, we wrote um, this terrible James Bond what would you steampunk James Bond it was a steampunk <laughs> espionage novel with magic sounds good but uh, yeah. Oh, yeah it sounded good when we talked about it didn't go, where you, it. It didn't go it, where you wanted it no. to go we kind of, we, you know, it, it was one of those cases where we were too green as writers, I think, to to tackle a project of that scope because we eventually rolled it into our on uh, Edge series, yeah. and which is actually very similar. We, we had basically, uh, to, to the setup that you described, we have we had like twin planets. Something happened and the planets kind of, our planet kind of split. And there was basically one planet that was had no magic, and one planet that had all the magic, and between them was like there's like a strip, three. and and it has both, as okay. you say, it kind yeah, of bleeds, yeah. and the, and the people that live in the edge are kind of misfits and yeah. outcasts they, because they, they don't, don't do they well can't be in either be society. Yeah. yeah, they can't yeah. live in our mundane yeah. world, and they can't live in that completely magical world. So yeah. they live in this. They're, they're usually very small strips. Strip, yeah. It's literally like a few more. Like pockets, and that's where okay. people get exiled, you know, from either way, or people from our world that slip into the edge and stay. Stay there, yeah. yeah. get stuck, kind of, yeah. You know what I thought about? What, what, when you talk about the cost of magic, there was a book, and I don't know if anyone here has read it. It's called Tech. It's literally, it was written in the early 90s or late 80s, and it was about the god of technology and how he started very small, and the other gods, like, laughed at him but there's a part in it where there's like the angel the angel Gabriel 
and he's actually driving a tank in the Israeli army for whatever reason. And he does something, like he runs over a tree, and, and God, literally, or another, like a very high person saying, there's going to be a cost for that. If, if you do this, then you're going to have to do this. And he, he does it. Like, literally, he's an angel. And he has to, because he did this one thing, he has to do, like he had to plant, like, 50 trees because he ran over one tree. And I just thought, yeah, like, even, even an angel had that, like... Yeah, it had a cost of... That's a really interesting well, book if you ever get a chance to... Well, you to. need boundaries to anything. I mean, if, if beings of awesome power don't have any restrictions on them, yeah. then there's no story because they could do anything. So where's the narrative tension in that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also interested in the fact that you guys, you've all written multiple series in multiple different genres. You've done straight-up sci-fi as well as fantasy. You guys do a blend of urban fantasy, paranormal fantasy, and then The Edge, I'm never... It's like Twinkies. People like it, but nobody knows what the heck it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a pretty good description. And then you have Clean Sweep, which is actually kind of sci-fi, because you have yeah. like, the Interstellar. Yes, it, yeah, it, it, it must Clean Sweep to be more sci-fi. Fantasy, but sci-fi. But, and like, you have the same kind of mix in the Confusion of Princes, where you kind of have fantasy elements as well as sci-fi. And um, Well, it's very soft science fiction, shall we say. The science isn't very well explained. But of course, there's, you know, there's Shades Children as well, which is... A, a very early post-apocalyptic yeah. dystopian science fiction. Um, and there are a lot of short fiction in different genres too. So, And do you feel like these different sub-genres or different styles of writing let you explore different things, or is it still going back to the that you have a story to tell and you build the world around it? And to triple question this, as you have matured as writers, have you found that you have tools that you rely on more and more skills that you've built in world creation i don't think you should be hung up as a writer or even as a reader that much on the definition of a genre let's take forrest gump let's take the movie forrest gump not not the novel but the movie yeah don't read the book if you (laughs) honey (laughs) you can't say stuff like that um, well, you can, I think. It's you can, but... perfectly reasonable. You can, it's just... It, it, the expectations are different. Yes. I think the if movie you watch not, the movie... The movie was the movie's more, more heartwarming yeah. and, and... But if you take the movie and you really cut away all the extra stuff, what you have is a plot of, of Forrest Gump who is trying very, very hard to um, prove himself to be good enough for Jenny. If you really cut everything away and look at the plot in its entirety of the movie, it's actually a romance. If you watch a movie, it's not really a romance. It's a narrative of love. So boxing something into a genre box is not always the best way to go. Yeah, I don't think we ever said, hey, we're going to write a paranormal romance or, hey, we're going to write... Science fiction, yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, with sci-fi, yeah, because we like to read a lot of sci-fi. And we may say, hey, I have an idea for a story and it has elements of this and then oh, I think after we write that. it we're like uh, what can we, what can we tell our publisher it is uh, you know and that's, and that's I guess the problem because we, we read relatively widely and um, it makes our stuff kind of difficult to classify On the Edge was really difficult to classify uh, Burn for me was actually kind of difficult it took us a while to like between Erica and us and our agent to kind of hit on the combination of a blurb that actually sort of described it the title was incredibly difficult we actually outsourced the title to the fans, and um, 
we, suge we submitted some 3,000 suggestions from the fans to the marketing That's department. That's a lot of titles. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we ran a contest. It was like, give us the yeah, title, yeah. you know, you will win I don't think we. I don't think we tried it. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's good to know the genres and know the tropes in the genres, but I don't think you have to limit yourself. Yeah. I think when you said you, you were developing a story and then you had to work out what it was, yeah, that exactly. is actually the key point. I mean, because I do exactly the same thing when I'm working on a story. When I start thinking about it and making notes for that story, I don't think of it in terms of it's going to be YA or children's or science fiction or fantasy. But as I progress, it will typically tell me that, well, actually this story is going to be a children's story and it's fantasy because it's got fantastical elements or it's science fiction because it's got science fiction elements. But that's not the most important thing. I mean, categories are just useful tools to help people find the kinds of books they most like. But I, I, I do agree it's very important not to get too hung up on categorization. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate that sometimes readers will judge a whole category upon a very limited selection of the books that they've read in it, or they will choose not to read outside a category because they think, I only like these kinds of books, whereas in actual fact they would like many other kinds of books because what they're responding to is the human story, as you said, as in Forrest Gump. It's, it's actually not, it's not the trappings. Um, but, so I, th I think it's really important for writers and readers to, to not, not get too fixated on categories or, or genres and and read widely and, and, and write widely and just work, work out what the book is when you've done it. <laughs> or let yeah. other people work out where, yeah. where what's the best way to sell it. Because that's, yeah. what, that's what categories are yeah, all about. Really yeah, it's almost you write it and it's really kind of up to other people yeah, really like, to decide what it is maybe. Yeah. So um, interestingly, Burn for Me sounds like it could be a science fiction novel. You've got a serum, you've got paranormal powers. If you, if you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. If you twisted could go either it way. Into, instead of magic into like superpowers, it yeah. would be like a superhero that, that's, story. That's exactly. Kind of, yeah. 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 Um, we, there's a segment of the readers, I think in every category, in science fiction, and romance, that are a little bit reactionary and they have a certain idea of what romance is and what science fiction is. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and they generally... Well, they don't always respond well to weird stuff thrown in. Um, that's why sometimes a book comes along that's kind of revolutionary. And when that revolutionary book comes, comes along, people read it and they really enjoy it. And then it changes their perception of the genre. For example, YA genre, um, for a little while there, had um, almost like... Um, I don't know, a label attached to it that it was basically like romantic YA, um, kind of in the line of Twilight, you know, kind of in, in which is, Twilight was a great book, but it was not, you know, it, it was not the entirety of the YA genre. Um, and then Hunger Games came along and radically changed the expectation of the genre and, and, and flipped it on its head. So I think that it's, you know, I think that the, Genres itself, like I said, are basically buying guidelines. That's what it is. Um, it's kind of difficult to talk about it because really you could take our books and you could stick them into regular... Okay, if you really strip down Kid Daniels, it's really a heroic fantasy set in a post-apocalyptic world. So you could put it into fantasy section. You could possibly put it into romance section based on the relationship between Kate and Curran. Um, you could, do you see what I'm saying? There's different places you could, you could shelve it. 
You could shelve it just as fiction. Too. Yeah, you could shelve yeah, it just as good. fiction. Yeah, fiction's good. It's like yeah. it's fiction. It covers everything. It yeah, covers but, everything. Yeah, but then there's also people I know who, who strictly read fiction, and there's other people I know who only read nonfiction, which is really strange, but, yeah. Well, you know, in the romance in particular, for example, um, you'll have a segment of readers that define romance as... You know, two people get together. They're together by the end of the book. Oh, yeah, you have to. Yeah, they're defined by the HEA. You have yeah, to the happily ever, ever after. after. <laughs> it has to occur. If it if it's a slow burn, which is a term for when romance takes several books to develop, um, you know, if if that happens, okay, this is this is good. We like it, but it's not romance. <laughs> you know. Well, and I think I think also someone does have an expectation. Like for instance, I, I'm going to bring up the the series you had that was a vampire series, and suddenly went into outer space. Yeah, even you, yes. as, as a fairly open minded reader, were like, "Whoa, okay, that took a turn." It was a, it was a set of independent books. It was by Connie Stottle, I believe. I'm I'm sorry. I, I think you're right. Pronouncing her name, um, but it was basically vampires, 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 and then the the next book in the series, without warning, was on a different planet, and I was like. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is not what I signed but, up but, but for. But <laughs> again, it's all in execution. Somebody could have made that work. Yes. I, yeah. I think so. I think I, it so. was not it's a all, bad book. It's, it was it's all in execution, great. yeah. You know, yeah. it just wasn't the book inconsistent. Uh, it was just so, such a radical shift from what the previous books were. From the setup like. that had been made, yeah, the reading yeah. expectations. Yeah, and I mean, for me, even, even, even to use the, like, the movie thing, like, I like the first Highlander. And then the second Highlander, it's like, oh, they're from outer space. And I was like, no, that's crap. Nope, I'm done. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I, don't, I know exactly what so you're So I just pretend about. it doesn't yeah. exist. Like, nope, it doesn't. Mm. Yeah. This is, because this it was just like happened. it had an idea, and I liked it, and it was very vague. No one really knew what it was, and it was like, they're immortals. And it's like, oh, we're banished from outer space. Like, no. No, no. It didn't help that the second one was just a bad film. Oh, it just oh, it was, it was terrible. terrible. It was altogether terrible. Yeah. Writing, everything was terrible. Yeah. It has no redeeming quality in that film. Yes. Whatsoever. I'm actually curious, like, with, I mean, understanding that there's a good story can be found in any genre, is there a particular book that really got you guys started or inspired as writers and as a whole, and then was there one book within either the science fantasy, or science fiction and fantasy genre that kind of, like, led you into it, just as readers even, not so much as writers? Well, there are many. What was there's, your gateway drug? There's, there's so, so many. Um, it's very difficult just to, just to choose one. Um, <laughs> in fact, almost impossible, I think, because there are so many important books. Very top five, um, then. <laughs> even top five is, is very difficult. I mean, I'm, but, but I guess casting my mind back to some of my very early reading, um, I probably can't remember the, the very first science fiction and fantasy books I read. Both my parents read science fiction and fantasy, and my father used to bring lots of American books back because he, he worked in the U.S. quite a lot. Um, so it's hard to remember what I started reading first, but, I mean, some of some of the gateway drugs would have been things like C.S. Lewis and the Narnia books, um, The Lord of the Rings, obviously, with The Hobbit first and then The Lord of the Rings, um, Andre Norton's science fiction and fantasy novels. I think I read... I think I read one of hers was one of the very first science fiction novels I read, which was, I think, called Daybreak 2150 AD in the in America, which is a post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, survival story. And I, I can still remember the cover quite clearly. And I read that very young. I read it probably before I was ready to read it. 
So that was quite important. Um, Ursula Le Guin, Susan Cooper, Lloyd Alexander, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, uh, all, all the classical authors, I guess, that you, you would expect, um, you, would, you would not be surprised by. Um, but also a lot of historical novelists whose work I like very much, um, Rosemary Sutcliffe. In fact, I was just rereading one of one of her books um, uh, in the last couple of days. Um, so a, a British historical author, um, Alan Garner, another British fantasist, Weird Son of Brisingerman, and so forth. Um, they're, they're they're a huge number. I could probably just try and recite no, no. them for for, for, yeah. for hours, but um, but I'm curious to to, to hear yours. Yeah. Um, you know, for me. Probably Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, Dune. It's my and least favorite Heinlein. Really? But yeah, yeah. I guess I, it's yeah. the ones that I will reread for all the time. Like if I if I will, and it, the, the thing is, my experience is probably somewhat different from Malone. I was stuck on a ship for four years, and you end up looking for anything, and you'll read anything. And and I remember um, I was a little bit resistant at first, but a, a friend tried to use like, oh, you got to read this vampire novel. It ended up being Interview with a Vampire. This was early 90s. He was in the Navy. I was in the Navy, and I, I read it in one night. I was like, okay, if you don't give me the next book, I will beat you savagely. So he had to give me the vampire list ad. And I think for me, as far as, like, urban fantasy, I could probably put my finger on that. Like, the idea that there were vampires, but it was our normal world, and they kind of existed in the shadows of our normal world, and there were those things. And I like the, like, maybe the historical aspect of that. Um... I think I do the mystery stuff probably in the book because I'm a huge fan of like mystery novels. Um, Robert Parker, particularly, he's deceased, but he wrote the Spencer novels, uh, and also I think the Jesse Stone uh, books. So that's where my mystery stuff comes from. I like from. a lot. Of, I, I like Parker. I, I read a lot of a lot of mystery. The, books. the new guy's good. That does it. Have you read him? I a, haven't read Ace, any. No. Um, then he they got a new guy, Ace Atkins or Ace Watkins. Okay. But he's dead on. Like he's. Perfect. He can do the voice. He can do the he can do the banter or the Hawkins. Okay, interesting. Banter. That hardly ever works. I would I I would recommend it. And okay. I've been reading those books since probably eighty five. Okay. Because I started with the Catskill Legal, right. which I think is one of the best. Yeah. But he's got it. Okay. Down. That's very um, interesting. It hardly ever works, but yeah, no. Good. And I'm a big fan of Clockwork Orange. Not I read that book. You're, you're a terrible addiction to David Gimmel. Oh yes, David Gimmel. I think the fantasy for me comes from David Gimmel. Unfortunately, also late uh, deceased. But yeah, I've read every probably because you tried it when I was in the army. You tried to get me to read Legends, and I was like, and it looked like the cover looked like Sean Connery with a sword. sword. It was, I think, Legends Louis a very Oreo. good book. It's his. It's best his next book. book. It's his best book by far, I think. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm in the army and I'm in classes and I don't have time to read very much. And you're like, read this book, and I was like, why? Well, it's, an old man goes to a, a castle and dies, and I'm like. <laughs> No, I don't have time <laughs> that for that. That was possibly not the selling, not the selling <laughs> blurb for that book. Overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't die straight away. That's the important part. Yes. No. Yeah. No, no, I like it. And I think you're right. I think that yeah, was... It's a people really can point at that and say, like, that is yeah. a very... I actually yeah. like King Beyond the Gate. Okay. The Tanaka Khan one. And yeah, I, I can only vaguely remember that. I remember Legend quite well. Yeah. But, um, and I'm reading some of his Waylander stuff, which is, like, before... Yeah, I... I I'm dipping down. I prefer Winter yeah. Warriors. That's Do you Winter Warriors? I don't know. Yeah, she was the one that started probably to get me to read what. Oh, you got me to read the Eddings, Anita Blake books too. Eddings, Anita Blake. Books. Yeah, she got me to read Eddings. He's very resistant. He's a creature I am a, of habit. We don't like change. <laughs> much. We fear change. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, uh, my experience was kind of different because uh, we didn't have science fiction that was not mandated by the Soviet Union. We had Strogatsky brothers, but they were very, very much in line with communist future. Um, but there was one particular story that I thought was very interesting that they wrote. Um, it was basically, here's, I think it was like called Picnic on the Side of the road or something like that. I'm sorry, it's been a long time. But basically the idea of it is um, the aliens came to Earth and they had a picnic. They sat down in a certain area for a little bit and then they flew off. Nobody saw them. Nobody knew what, what happened. But that area is forever changed. And laws of physics and chemistry do not apply to things in that area. There's like walls that eat people, or I, I don't remember now. I think they had some kind of freaky moths. Um, one of the things that they had uh, was, it looked like an hourglass, basically two metal uh, kind of like hockey puck looking things, right, together. And you could like move it around in the hockey puck state, but there was nothing between. There was absolutely nothing. They were not magnetic. There was just an empty space. So they would send people in there to, to basically, scientists would suit up and they would go in there and um, they, would, they, would, they would get something out and, you know, and study it. And they had to have special guides to go into the zone. And curiously, it was set in a small town, I believe, in the in, in U.S. Um, and the, it, was, it was a complete propaganda piece. But the idea of it was very, very interesting. The idea of this freaky area where nothing worked like it's supposed to be. It sounded like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, it sounded kind of, it, it, it kind of was similar to that. And then when the Iron Curtain sort of opened, um, my father was a great believer in systematic education. So he purchased the entirety of the very pirated um, uh, best science fiction. Um, it, 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 they used to put out like every year best short stories. Um, they still do. Is it Gardner de Zouar's I think best science so. fiction? The best science fiction of the yep. year. And he bought whatever the amount of pirated volumes. There was like 50 volumes. It was enormous. And he said, okay, go. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah. Saimak, Shackley, um, Asimov. Um, I actually, I didn't, I liked the Asimov robots. I did not like the Empire series as much. Uh, I had to read Clark, and I had to explain it back to my dad. I was 12. It was really painful. Um, there was another one. And then, and then the, way, the way my boyfriend at the time, he found a really good way to keep me sort of, you know, I guess, attached. He got a hold of um, Conan novels, again, the pirated versions. So he would supply me with Conan novels and Harry Harrison um, Not me. Stainless steel rat. No, yeah. oh, different man, Stainless steel rat's a classic. Yeah. Yes, a classic. yes. Yeah. Uh, Death World is a really good. Story. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, the Death World is really good. Um, so that was sort of what we I, I kind of grew up on. But again, this was a little bit later, teenage years type thing. But um, I found that for me personally, things that I gravitate back to have kind of nothing to do with urban fantasy. I don't know why. I, I'm reading Jack Campbell right now in the Lost Fleet series, and I'm really enjoying it. it you almost, like the Rachel Bach? I like the Rachel Bach. 
It almost has to be like either like space opera, science fiction, or space military, or uh, Tanya Hoffer. I write this awesome space marine series. I like that. Um, Thessalonica by uh, Harry Turtledove, which is really, for me, was his best book, and here's why. It's a normal person. I think he makes shoes or something. Yeah. Um, in a Greek city of Thessalonica that is beset by mythological creatures. It, he's a completely well, normal person. You know, and he is... He, well, it's the Slavs, isn't it? They're being yeah, attacked by the Slavs. Yeah, they're being attacked, so. attacked by Slavs. And then yeah, he has to go that. interact with satyrs and, and all those creatures of, of Greek mythology. But it was the juxtaposition of totally normal person has to go and do this without any superpowers. Well, yeah, and, and it was also that, that that world of, of the Greek mythology was dying because of the coming of the White Christ. Do you remember? Yeah. And it, it, that those are things that sort of interest me. I found myself reading less and less in urban fantasy genre. I used to really like it, and I would read everything in it. But it's just... There's an awful lot to read, too, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's more and more. In, in any of the subgenres, there's more and more to well, read. And it feels so much like work now um, mm. because you write it all the time and you're you in need, it all day. You need and something then, different. Yeah you, yeah, you want to change your face sort of at the end of the day. We have one last question. This is from Twitter um, fan Victoria, also known as at Sumo Peanut. Um, and then after that, we have a flash round of kind of just fun questions. Um, could you all say more about how you manage the struggle between the creative and the business aspects of writing? Badly. <laughs> oh, we have an agent for that. Um, yeah. You know, I think, I guess we don't make business decisions without, well, the, we're discussing between the two of us, but also more importantly, taking our cue and advice from our agent because that's her job. We're not business people. Or you're a much better business person than I am. We are. It's very humbling to some extent because when you try to do like self-published books, you end up sort of being... Realizing how much there is to yeah, it. Yeah, how much there is to it. Um, for example, I have possible Photoshop skills and I can make a cover. And one of the covers I, make, I made was... I thought it was really pretty and it was universally panned. <laughs> and to me, that was basically a signal. Don't try to be what you're not. We're very good writers. We are business savvy in the sense that we try to keep up with the trends um, within the field. Like, okay, self-published books, you know, um, Amazon hatchets turned off, different issues that are, that crop up, um, different distribution channels that crop up. We try to be aware of that. But for us, the business aspect of writing primarily comes down to promotion and presence on social media. Going to Comic-Con for us, I guess, is a business part, mm -hmm. it's promotion. Um, and that, here's the thing, we absolutely love meeting our readers and meeting other writers, and it's fantastic, but none of this is writing. Yeah. Um, it's writing surprising how writing. much, yeah, none of this is actually us sitting with our butts in a chair, putting words on a page. Like, this is great, and then going on tour is great, but you're not writing, and if you don't write, if you don't manage that time and write, there won't be any more tours and there won't be any more books. Books, yeah, exactly. You have to write. Ultimately, ultimately the writing is the most important thing. Um, that's that's very true. I'm an ex-editor and an ex-agent. I was always a writer as well, but I've had a parallel career in publishing. I've also run various businesses. Um, that said, even though I'm very steeped in the, the publishing business and have been for a very long time. My wife is a publisher. Our whole life is books and publishing. Um, 
you know, I also depend very much on, on my, my various agents. They are key business partners. They're, it's very important to, to find agents that will be good business partners that you, you can work with. The best agent in the world or the most famous agent in the world may not be the best agent for you as, a, as an individual author. Yeah. It, has to, it is a partnership and so it has to work out on, on those levels. But I think the question about separation is an important one because I believe that you need to, what will nearly always work out the best is to write what you really want to write, write what you love, and then figure out the best way to make use of it. Not try and do it the other way around. Not try and sit down and say, you know, what's hot at the moment, what categories are, are selling. Yeah, you can't do that. No, I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a book to the market because invariably they end up being worse books. It can, it can work. There are examples where that's happened, but they are very few and far between. So I think separating separating the two out. You know, you have your sort of writing brain and your business brain, and you should use the writing brain for the writing, and not engage the business brain until you until you need to. Because being, I, I just want to build on a little bit on that. Being a writer implies you're like a satellite dish. Normally, people have a certain emotional barriers that they put up for themselves. You know, uh, writers tend to not have as many emotional barriers because we deal in emotion all the time. It's also like, what is the character feeling? What is the character? Which is which is why sometimes you know people say the writing business makes you neurotic. Mm, you don't start out that way, but you know, <laughs> you kind of have no emotional barriers. So, coming into the business with that mindset of having very low emotional threshold. Um, Business decisions can really hit you hard. Um, like, I remember we sold something at auction to Germany. I believe it was the first three Kate Daniels book, books. And I nearly had a nervous breakout, breakdown over it because I knew there was no possible way the books would earn out. It would take years and years and years and years before it turned out that amount of money. And I was like, okay, we're finished in Germany. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know... Unless you, it turns out that we're not, but unless it, unless you have that separation of professional and writing, it will literally cause you to have a nervous breakdown. Is there like a way that you kind of have found like a balance between the two or is it just by very much working with a good business partners as well, Garth? Well, I think it's it's practice. Um, I do think it's you have to actually make yourself not worry about these things. You have to practice being philosophical about it. And I suppose my basic mantra, which I've developed over a long time in the business, not just with my books, but working, working and publishing, is that ultimately the only thing a writer can do is write another book. So whatever happens, whether there's good things happening or there's bad things happening, writing another book will give you, the, will give you the ch another chance, will give you another chance to either recover from whatever bad thing has happened or to continue possibly continue the good stuff. You can't make things happen, so there's no point worrying about them. Yeah, um, yeah. So you, you have to try and learn to be philosophical, but of course it's, it's much easier said than done. Yes. And, but what, it, what does make it easier is if you are writing another book, because it's, it's easy to begin to fret and worry about what's happening with the current book, and, and you end up just doing that all the time. It's, so if you force yourself back to work, then you don't have time to worry about all this other stuff. And I think this actually applies very early on. If you're a beginning writer sending out a manuscript and you're waiting for publishers to come back, don't sit around biting your nails and worrying about what's going to happen. Write another one straight away. 
because that will always serve you. It will always serve you best. The more you write, the more chances you have for something to happen. Uh, they, 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 all, they all represent potential. Um, so always, always return to the writing. Return to the yeah. writing and hope for the best. Yeah, because that's really all you can control. Once you put the book out there, it's like a kid. You can't really control them. They're going to do what they're going to do or it will do. That's the only thing you can control is, is writing the best book you yeah. can write and put it out there and, and whatever the happens, yeah. happens. Yeah. I mean, you help it along by doing, you know, you do the promotion, promotion and, and so on because you want... I mean, they're like a grown-up kid in a way. They're like an eighteen-year-old has gone into the world. And, oh, but you're going I wish our eighteen-year-old would go into the world. Oh my God. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Obviously, we, we, mine are a little bit younger, so you know, I'm, I'm possibly a little bit. But, in, but you still, you want to help them. Yeah. But um, and but you they're can go, and you can. So you do the promotion. You you, you do all the things that, that will help. But at the same time, as you were discussing before, ultimately you've got to sit back down and just just write. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so now for the quick round of questions. Um, if you had the choice of any actor or actress, for that matter, to narrate the story of your life, who would it be? I have the most horrible memory for names. Um, is it Catherine Hepburn, the uh, the Lion in the Winter? Yes. Yeah, well, she's that a would wonderful. Be that is a, I she's love a that actress. movie. Yeah, I would like Bing Crosby to sing my life. Oh. All right, we got a musical over with Garth. Brian Blessed. Oh, yeah. there we go. I love him. He's got a, a fantastic, rambunctious voice. Yes. Mind you, he'd be shouting your whole life. Yes. The shouted life. <laughs> well, but but he's very controlled in that one scene. He is. Where he, where he goes, and he goes to France, and they're like, what have the do for And he's to, like, you have to oh, school. Oh, Henry. in the line of winter. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right, and if you could have dinner with one author, dead or alive, who would it be? And what would you ask them? Oh, that's easy. Terry Pratchett. Um, I don't think I would ask him anything. I would just sit like this. Parker. Robert Parker. Okay. Interesting. I think possibly, this is an incredibly uh, cliched answer, I think I probably would go for William Shakespeare. I would really like to talk to him about some of the plays and how they were written and settle once and for all all the nonsense about other people having written them. I think that's a good idea. I think four or five hundred years from now, people are going to have the same thing about Stephen King. They'll say, (laughs) you know, that guy couldn't possibly have written all of that stuff. But living as we do, we know that he did, but it's going to seem ridiculous in the future. Yeah. Like, that guy couldn't he couldn't have written a third of that. That's ridiculous. Well, a lot of his is is class based stuff. You know that he was he, you know he wasn't educated well enough to write it and so on, which is you know nonsense. Yeah. And um, yeah, it just would be very interesting. And and he's had such a you know massive effect upon you know, literature and English ever since. So yeah. I think it would be it would be very very interesting. Nice. And then um, one last question. Uh, what's the one question that you've never been asked, it can be ridiculous or serious, that you wish someone had asked you? I can tell you the most ever asked, the, the, the continuously asked question is how do we write together? That, that's like every single interview, except this one. I basically would prefer not to be asked questions if I, if I had my way, so I think trying to think of one that I would, <laughs> like, I would be yes. asked is, is quite difficult. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. No. I am not that great with the whole interview promotional. I, I like being a writer. I really kind of hate being an author. <laughs> um, You're just being self-deprecating. No, I'm not. Well, I think I it's just, true. I think it's, it's yeah. a common thing with many because you have to be 
in, you know, introverted and self-focused yeah. to write, and then and and uh, you know alone to work, except for you two work together. But you're still in a way you're you're in a but you're in a you are in a small controlled environment of just you guys working. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you've got to spring out of your box and talk to lots and lots it of is. people. It is. It's so strange because I, an extrovert. Our our life is so mundane actually normally. We have dogs and cats and children and we're not no one knows who we are, where we live. And then all of a sudden it's like yeah, be be here's a stage. Be here's the a author. Be alone be, Andrew. Be the author, we're like, yeah. But we're no. not really that. We're we just had we had a lady that um one time I almost fainted. She kind of came up to the table and she turned green and she started going sideways. And I was like, no. You know, uh, we had somebody who cried. We had somebody who... And it's so strange. Yeah, it, it was very strange to me. I mean, I, 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 there are people that I would be all struck and wouldn't be able to oh, talk yeah. to that I, I greatly respect. Um, the turning green part and falling over, not quite that the, far. That's a little yeah. bit too far, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I remember uh, my, my defining moment was Louis McMaster Bujold. She oh, was yeah. signing at a small convention, I believe in Dallas or Fort Worth. Uh, but it was all outstanding, and I came up to her, and I got really tongue-tied, and I was like, ah, and she was so nice. Yeah, for me, it was the Rambo guy. Because I read his books. Oh, yeah, you met him at our team. Yeah, I met him at our team. Yeah, First yeah. Blood. I love yeah, that book. That's a great book. An amazingly yeah. good book. And it was a really good film. So yes. The first one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's so good. And people, when you tell people, like, well, he dies in the book, they're like, what? Like, <laughs> Charlton <laughs> kills him. They're like, well, yeah. well, how can there be the movies? I'm like, well, there's lots That's of how it works. Yeah. yeah. Thank you all so much for coming down and talking with us today. It has been fantastic to hear about how you guys build your worlds and everything. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to HarperCollins Presents, a podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Today we spoke with Alona Andrews, author of Burn For Me, available October 28th, and Garth Nix, author of Clarial, available now. We hope you will join us again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>